0: Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program about research and the formulation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm very delighted today to have on the program for a return visit Robert Brigham, Shirley Eckerbosky, Professor of History and International Relations here at Vassar College, who is here with us to talk about his most recent book. The title of that book is Reckless, Henry Kissinger and the Tragedy of Vietnam, published in 2018 by Public Affairs Press. Welcome back, Bob.
1: Thanks for having me, Tom.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you here again. You were on the show almost exactly, believe it or not, 12 years ago to talk about your book, Is Iraq? Another Vietnam, which came out in 2008, just as George W. Bush and company were three years into the Iraq War, which began in, I think, 2003, And in that book, you were considering lessons that might be derived from our involvement in Vietnam and how they might have applied to our then-conduct in Iraq, a conflict, by the way, that we're still involved in to this day. So this new book then also, I think, perhaps less obviously, seems to have implications for current foreign and military policy. So it seems to me just as timely a book as that last book. So the question I guess I'm aiming at here, what prompted you to write this book just now? And does your analysis of Kissinger's and role in the Vietnam War have implications for our present foreign policy?
1: Big question, I know. But, uh, great question, yeah. <laughs> great question. I was asked by the Washington Post to review Kissinger's memoir mm-hmm. on the negotiations that ended the Vietnam War in 2003, uh-huh. before Iraq. Uh-huh. And as I was going through that book, and, it, and actually I should say it was a very favorable review. Uh, oh, it was. Oh, Kissinger, yeah. Kissinger's a good writer. Uh-huh. I thought he was raising good points. But every once in a while I would write in the margin, this doesn't fit with the academic literature on the subject. This doesn't jive with my understanding of what Mm -hmm. went on, when it went on. Mm -hmm. And I thought that there may be some instructive use of going through the actual transcripts of the negotiation Uh and matching them to what Kissinger said. Uh Because it did seem to me that we could draw some lessons from how you went to conflict. And then the Iraq War happened. Uh And so uh, my publisher, Public Affairs, asked me to do a book, and it turned into two, I'm kind of comparing the framework, the architecture of Iraq and Vietnam, mm-hmm. because we didn't seem to have learned any no, lessons. No. Uh, we, the last time I was on your show, we were talking about counterinsurgency and its yeah. efficacy, yeah. and Petraeus did his PhD on how counterinsurgency yeah. could have worked yeah, in yeah, Vietnam, yeah. And so we were repeating. We yeah. were, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme, and, yeah. and we were in that same <laughs> yeah. boat. So I put the Kissinger Project aside, and then wanted to get back to it. And there was renewed interest in Kissinger recently because of some biographies. Neil Ferguson had the first of two volumes to come out. Some people think this book's in response to that, but it absolutely is not in response to that. It's much more theoretical and much more, I think, focused singularly on the negotiations. And clearly Iraq and Afghanistan and even Syria are in the background. How do you get out of an intractable conflict? Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that's that's the question. Uh And Kissinger was a co-winner of a Nobel Peace Prize Mm -hmm. for how he got out of this conflict, Mm -hmm. but I think he did a poor job. Here at Vassar, I teach a course called Ending Deadly Conflict, and we look at all the theoretical literature for the first third of the course, and then we do case studies Mm -hmm. for the last Mm two-thirds. And with the case studies, we look at the writings of the people who actually did the negotiations. Uh-huh. And yeah. there's not a person who has gone through those courses who would sit and look at the Vietnam peace agreement and conclude that it's a terribly flawed document. Yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah. that was the premise. That this is a celebrated statesperson. Even people who don't like him very much as a person concede generally that uh, he was a good statesperson. And there's been a revival of Richard Nixon, and with Neil Ferguson's book, there's sort of a revival of Kissinger. And I just wanted to join the conversation a little bit, in a very narrow slice, Uh just looking at the negotiations and his role in that. Two things come to mind. One,
0: Kissinger, to some extent, is writing his own history, isn't he? And then also, there's a question, are there newly available sources at all that you were looking at, apart from the transcripts, which I don't know if those are newly available, but certainly the Vietnamese transcripts yeah. were not available. Yeah, before.
1: there are some sources. The Nixon Library is still pretty stingy with a lot of the material But we do now have Kissinger's papers at Yale, and most of them are his pre- and post-government. Yeah, Uh Um, Ah, That's interesting. But I think they do tell an awful lot about who he is and what made him think the way he did. And so I did use those materials. Uh, The people at Yale were quite good, and Kissinger himself oversees, or at least his firm oversees uh, dissemination of those materials, and they were quite friendly about having me look at things. And I do think that from those materials, I got an idea of Kissinger as a negotiator Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't have had without looking at those papers. And it really centers on his belief in great man theory. Uh, A single individual sitting in a room, Uh Uh when all the academic work on the topic says just the opposite. That it takes a big team with lots of different specialties, working together. It's not an event. It's a process. It needs to be done. Uh, methodically, expertly, professionally, low key. None of these. Scream uh, yeah. <laughs> Henry Kissinger. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: So that's, that's. So the great man theory, there's a classic theorist of this, isn't there? So, yes,
1: there have been several philosophers, Kant, Spinoza, and others who've studied those people in history who thought they could bend the future to their will. Uh-huh. And Kissinger certainly prescribes to that theory. Uh-huh. He really thinks that someone with his kind of intelligence and resolve. Can frame history, shape history, bend history. And this played a huge role in, in why he wanted to be Nixon's point person uh-huh. Uh-huh. on secret talks within secret uh-huh. talks. And he's a teacher himself to
0: start with, isn't he? So, Harvard professor. Yeah. So certainly the Vietnam War plagued the Johnson administration. And the Nixon campaign has recently been criticized for sabotaging the peace talks that were already underway in Paris. In Johnson's presidency, by communicating with Saigon that they'd get a better deal out of the negotiations with the North, which caused South Vietnam to announce just before the uh, presidential election that they would not take part in the negotiations, thus tipping, uh, essentially, the election to Nixon. And this was recited in Ken Burns' recent documentary on Vietnam, talking about 1968. So the question is, is there truth to this? You know, because the implications here are out-and-out out, treason, frankly, uh, to get elected. Uh, yeah. And, of course, the Republicans are always ready to sell the farm to, in order
1: to make other uh, 30 pieces of silver. So there's some evidence to suggest this happened, and it doesn't matter.
0: Yes. Uh, now, Interesting. Yeah, so.
1: There are some scholars yeah. who believe that Kissinger approached Anna Chenault, okay. who was married to General Claire Chenault, uh-huh. and they ran the Tiger Line freight company to yeah. China together, and that she, on Kissinger's direction with or without Nixon's blessing, approached Boisiem, hmm. who was the South Vietnamese ambassador to the United States, and then he approached his colleagues in Saigon and said the Johnson administration, Basically, at this point, Kissinger was invited to be an observer uh-huh. to the negotiations just taking part in Paris yeah. by the Democrats. Uh-huh. Yes. huh. So he uh-huh. told yes. the Nixon camp that Johnson will probably have an 11th hour bombing pause. He predicted this a couple of months in advance. Yeah. Almost anybody could have probably predicted this, yeah. but Kissinger yeah. took special credit yeah. for it. They were going to have a bombing pause and that they would make an overture toward peace. And so the thinking was that Kissinger, to ingratiate himself with Nixon... Because he had a hard time getting into government through the Democrats. Gave him Saigon in a platter, in a sense, through Anna Chenault. Uh And that Anna Chenault then convinced her South Vietnamese friends not to accept this deal. Yes. uh And so there is a group of historians who accept that. uh And there are a group of historians who say there's no No strong evidence Uh to support that. And... My I, This isn't a big part of the book, but it's a little part of the book. And talking to South Vietnamese who were in the government at that time, yeah. uh-huh. it didn't matter. No, it didn't matter to them. It didn't matter to them. Yeah. Um, and, and one economic advisor, senior economic advisor to the Saigon government told me in an interview that if anyone in the United States thought that the Saigon government needed a Harvard professor uh-huh. and a Central Park dilettante yeah. <laughs> to tell them not to accept negotiations yeah. in a war that they had been fighting for over 10 years yes. yeah. Yeah. and suffering huge casualties, yeah. that that's part of the problem, yeah. that they just oh, didn't yeah, understand yeah, yeah, yeah. what Saigon yeah. had invested in this politically. Yeah. So it's not something I've researched deeply. Uh-huh. Some people have researched deeply, but there it's an argument without end. There is uh-huh. a yeah. great deal of historiographical debate over this but in the end, it, did it didn't influence, it yeah. did. I don't think it influenced, it influenced. policy at all. Yeah. There was no way Saigon was ever going to agree to any peace negotiations that included the National Liberation Front. Yeah at least under those conditions. They eventually do, but the conditions change. Yeah, yeah. after a long time, though. So
0: you mentioned we talked about Kissinger and his academic background. What is his background in terms of preparing himself for government service in the Nixon administration? And Can you also talk about his thinking on Vietnam in the early years of the war in this life?
1: Kissinger is very smart, and McGeorge Bundy was his dean at Harvard. Uh And McGeorge Bundy Uh became... Kennedy's National Security Advisor, and they were colleagues of a sort, sometimes had a strained relationship, and sometimes it was warm. And so Kissinger had always kind of thought that the call would come, and he did have minor consulting roles, but nothing major, nothing like he saw. And then he also thought that maybe when Johnson came into power that Bundy and others would still get him through, but the, the dam that broke it open for him was Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., and his son George, Uh who taught at Harvard, and was a close colleague of Henry's. So they got him a consulting job to report directly to Lodge as ambassador Uh about an overview of Vietnam. And so Kissinger, he did his homework. He met with everyone he could on Vietnam. He traveled to Vietnam in October, I think it was 65, early. During the Johnson administration. And uh, he wrote a report, and the report was quite prescient. He had a lot of things, I think, right in the report. He had also been in charge of the Harvard seminar, Uh and so he used Vietnam was going to be the ticket in. uh He had made his career as an academic on limited nuclear war in the Cold War, and how you thought about it strategically and that was his first big book after his dissertation and and that really brought him to the public's uh, eye especially at the beltway but using this position as the head of the seminar he brought in the folks who were experts on vietnam Uh so he really did his homework and he did everything the way that somebody who wants to get deeply into the weeds quickly Uh Should, and yeah, did.
0: And created his own little think tank. Created almost, his
1: own little yeah. think tank yeah. and, and really did a lot of work. And then he wrote an article in Foreign Affairs uh-huh. about what to do in Vietnam right before he was named National Security Advisor. And one of the points I try to make in the book is all that work seems to have disappeared once he entered the oh, White uh-huh. House. That then he had different ideas about uh-huh. what could be done and yeah. So he's critiquing Johnson's right. program, basically, there, isn't he? he was always quite critical of the military uh-huh. in Vietnam, all the way through the Johnson years, but also when he was in power. Uh-huh. He was quite critical of the uh-huh. military, and I think his ego and ambition played the best of him and, and had an impact on negotiations, but it also had an impact on the way that he saw Vietnam. I uh-huh. think it changed him on uh-huh. Vietnam. Uh-huh. Interesting. So
0: you make it clear that Kissinger goes to great lengths to isolate then the Defense yeah. Department and the State Department yeah. from having any influence on Nixon's decision-making on Vietnam, and that he essentially functions as a negotiator and a policymaker as a maverick, and a maverick is the word. Is this a basis for what you term in the title his recklessness? Um, it's part of it, yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, again, going back to this course I teach on ending deadly conflict, I think that what I was after here is what does it take to extract the United States from Vietnam, mm-hmm. a war that this president, because of popular opinion, because of congressional feelings, has to wind down? Yeah. It's committed to winding down, maybe not in the same way that Kissinger is. I mean, Kissinger wanted the war to end because he thought that he and Nixon together could get on to bigger foreign policy. Yeah, okay. yeah, it was stopping everything. it's stopping that everything. But the first big problem was that the way that Kissinger went about this was kind of in a zero-sum fashion. He isolated defense and state. He didn't bring them in. They didn't even know he was negotiating secretly. And then he started to advocate for military positions Uh without the defense department's full participation, and sometimes without their support. And that's, to me, what became reckless. And then his Uh reporting back once the secret contacts start in Paris... There's a great disjuncture between the transcripts and what he's reporting back. Now, there's lots of reasons for that. Some of them might be even honorable, but still there's a discrepancy.
0: Yeah, there. and it fits with the... Great man, 32 the... Uh, Metternich was the person yeah. I think of. You mentioned, yeah. And then in his authorized biography, he claims he himself is an idealist, and this is his big problem, why no one likes his policies and has mm-hmm. all this critique for him. And I guess you could say he is an idealist in some way, but maybe that's the wrong word. Yeah, yeah. May,
1: I mean, maybe earlier in his career, but I, again, I was so narrowly focused, purposely, on the yeah. negotiations, and there's nothing idealistic about, yeah, but, about you know, him yeah. here. Yeah. He and Nixon set forward... What they considered peace with honor, an honorable peace, and my thesis is that he did not achieve any of those objectives, Uh and yet there was a significant loss of life on all sides between the time he took yeah, power. Yeah, how much at and stake here. There's a, a lot, lot stake. of stakes. You just have to walk this along the
0: Vietnam uh, Memorial in yeah. Washington. This is not yeah. an academic yeah. exercise. Yes, yeah. No, by any means. So can you talk about the people who he, he was isolating here and their views and how they compared with his, like Melvin Laird and yeah. William Rogers, and maybe even Nixon himself?
1: Huh? Nixon's harder for me to get at. Yes. And uh, he's, and an he's an enigma for everybody. He is, <laughs> and, <laughs> and critics of the book, I think, are rightfully saying yeah. I'm giving Nixon... You know, short shift here. But with Laird, Laird was an inspired choice, I think, for Secretary of Defense. He was a longtime member of the House. Mm-hmm. He was from Wisconsin. He knew how to count votes. He was a pragmatist. He knew how to cooperate across the aisle. Mm-hmm. He understood better than, I think, he understood better than anybody else in the administration mm-hmm. what the public could bear. And so he proposed to Nixon very early on in 1969, And he came up with a word, too, to describe it. He thought that in order to get an honorable peace in Vietnam, the United States had to drag the conflict out long enough to give the South Vietnamese a reasonable chance to survive. Uh And the way that you could do that, to get the public and Congress behind you enough to keep supporting Saigon, was to bring American troops home Mm -hmm. and have their military mission be completely taken over by the South, South Vietnamese. Yeah. It's called Vietnamization. Yeah. It's Laird's word. Yeah. He described uh-huh. it. Yeah. Kissinger hated this uh-huh. because he thought the biggest lever he had in the secret negotiations were American troops. Yeah, Take American yeah. troops yeah. home. Yeah. What leverage does he have in Paris? Yeah. And there's there certainly a yeah. grain of truth in that. Yeah. Yeah. So that started his kind of competitive relationship with Laird. Uh-huh. And Kissinger was always about trying to condition the negotiations in order to get Hanoi to bend the knee. And so he would support policies and advocate for policies that Laird didn't think the public would accept, yeah. nor would Congress. And yeah. that just had them at loggerheads.
0: Yeah. D- did Laird have a sense of what the North Vietnamese would accept also? Because that's part of the problem here. Yeah, that, yeah. I don't think. I mean, it's interesting.
1: In Laird's materials, he's not all that concerned about their negotiating position. Oh, I see. see. He's really a good member of the House. He's narrowly focused on what he thinks the president can do and how he can get enough Americans on board. And I do think, and I make this argument in the book, that for better or worse, I think Laird and Nixon agreed on this policy. Uh Kissinger was the odd person out, but had to go along with it. And that after Nixon's November 3rd, 1969, silent majority speech... Uh I think their policy was actually working. Yeah. From the,
0: Nixon's perspective, he did get reelected. He, you know, so he, he will get, get reelected that, yeah. in
1: 72. But the yeah. idea that there is a silent majority that's not protesting in the streets that can pressure Congress just as much as the people in the streets can pressure Congress, that can buy me time. And for Kissinger, it was always about the clock on the wall. Uh-huh. Can I stretch this out enough? to give Saigon this reasonable chance to survive even though Laird's made it more difficult for me and even though the protesters have made it more difficult for me and even though Hanoi and China and the Soviet Union continue to make it more difficult for me and one of the major arguments in the book is that Kissinger and the policies he's pursued sped up that clock. Uh Laird I I think and Nixon had in 1969 successfully had slowed the clock down And then Kissinger's outspoken advocacy for the bombing in Cambodia sped it up. Yeah, yeah. And other bombing in Laos, and then yeah. eventually the invasion of Cambodia. So, how about Cyrus Vance? So, Cy Vance is on his way out so, by the time okay, Kissinger then, comes okay. in. Yeah. Okay, okay. So, he had been part of that secret negotiating team in Paris. Okay. Yeah. And so, it gets confusing because there are two secret negotiations going on yeah. in Paris one that Sy and Avril Harriman yeah. start then Sy yes. plugs back into uh-huh. periodically and then the secret secret negotiations that Kissinger is having yeah. with Laidoukta and Zouante yeah. Yeah. out in a working class suburb of Paris yeah. without the knowledge yeah. Yeah. of, of yeah. pretty much anyone except for a very small cohort yeah. of people yeah. Really interesting,
0: those, and the way they were conducted. And we do have information about what happened in the room there. We
1: have transcripts. And
0: Nixon seems to have known what was going on, even though Kissinger's lying to his face often about Yeah, that's, that's one of
1: the more curious aspects of this, is that we have transcripts from both the Americans and Vietnamese, mm-hmm. and what's really interesting is how similar they are. If you strip uh, yes. all the kind of propaganda uh, off the yeah. published version, yeah. Of the Vietnamese transcripts, they're very, very similar. So we know what was said in the room, uh-huh. and yet Kissinger still thought it was important to write summaries uh-huh. that were more optimistic yes. than what uh-huh. was being yeah. said in the yeah. room. Yeah. That's being charitable. Yeah. yeah, and Nixon was no optimist. He? <laughs> no, and I, I, I mean, I've, I think, and I, and I say this a little bit in the book, but maybe I should amplify it more. and Maybe I will if I get a chance to put this in the paperback. But there might be a plausible explanation. You know, depending on where people are on the political spectrum, as I've been out on book talks with this, and a lot of people think, well, you know, Kissinger's a war criminal and this is treasonous yeah, action yeah, yeah. line to the yeah, president. Yeah. I think that may be a little...
0: Well, in his summaries, he's just saying how things are going. How know? things yeah. are going, yeah. and
1: he's and he's advocating certain positions. But he is overly optimistic, mm-hmm. purposefully, yes. and maybe not truthfully. Yeah. But I think what he's trying to do is to make sure that Nixon's mind... The Vietnam War ends in Paris, not in Saigon. And that he so wants to be the person that ends it. That he perhaps stretches uh, the credible truth about the process. For example, he does write Nixon continuously that the North Vietnamese have come closer than they ever have in any meeting before to a mutual troop withdrawal. Now, you can spend the rest of your life looking at those transcripts. The North Vietnamese never mention a new... new, No. Never. Never, no, yeah. Ever. Because they don't even acknowledge that their troops are in South Vietnam. They don't really acknowledge that there's a place called South Vietnam. So only in the POW issue do they get close to that Uh admission. But they never, Uh they never suggest that it's going to be a mutual troop patrol.
0: And then, as far as the government of South Vietnam goes, how much in the loop are they here in these negotiations? Not at all. Not at all, nothing. So Kissinger's negotiating on their behalf, and he isn't even talking to them about what their position is. I think he had utter
1: contempt for anything Vietnamese, including anything from Saigon. He probably couldn't name you more than four or five people in South Vietnam. Uh If you spend even just a little bit of time looking at, at the documents on this, it's clear that... He's just contemptuous.
0: So he's not talking to people at all.
1: No. So Only at the last minute, and then he thinks that the president will be able to pressure.
0: Yeah, No. so this is really interesting from a negotiating perspective, because A, he's negotiating on their behalf, and yeah. B, there may be options here, there may be concessions they may be willing to make that you right. don't know that, and, you, and then there are concessions
1: that they're not going to make that he's assuming yeah. maybe they will make on their behalf. But And that's ultimately where it comes down, yes, is uh, that they get to a point, and then he and Nixon agree... That they're going to go along with it yeah. because the United States is not going to be held up yeah. by this junior partner. So,
0: Safi means don't have any clout. It's not like Luca Brazzi and The uh, Godfather. Right. You know, who's going to tell Luca Brazzi? And right. so, so, you know.
1: It's a really tragic, yeah. in a war filled with tragedy, it's, yeah. it's one of the more tragic episodes. I mean, it's a really uh, interesting chapter of the history of the war when Kissinger is in a sense, summoned to Saigon uh-huh. because they found out. Yeah. And the timing of that is what's interesting. So in the spring of 1972, North Vietnamese troops crossed the demilitarized zone and invaded northern South Vietnam. And so they captured Quang Tri City and they were marching pretty thoroughly through I-Corps, the northernmost military region. And the ARVN, the South Vietnamese Army, backed by American firepower, actually blocked that invasion Mm -hmm. and then repelled that invasion and then captured territory they had lost. Uh So by August or September of 1972, they thought that they were actually In control and on the offensive. And that's exactly when Kissinger's telling them, you're going to sign this peace agreement that leaves North Vietnamese troops where they are right now. And they felt stabbed in the back.
0: Fascinating. So there's a kind of a logical problem here. It's a very basic logical problem, almost insurmountable in that we're negotiating on behalf of people that we have contempt for. So, so is it the case? I mean, the question here is, it, was it indeed the case that we were spending American lives, over 58,000 killed after all, 300,000 wounded conservatively, and billions of dollars propping up a government we were contemptuous of and which we abandoned in the end, essentially? Yeah, I'm mean, i not
1: sure how far I would go down that road. Yeah. I do think that you can put that at Kissinger's feet. This wasn't a book about Nixon, so I really yeah. haven't spent a uh, lot, yes, exhaustive yeah. amount of time no, on no, Nixon. No. And well, what a you few thought. times
0: Nixon pokes his head into your book. He comes out very well, I thought, yeah. in his own way. At least, yeah. at least that's having a mind.
1: Uh, yeah. But as far as uh, disregard for the South Vietnamese, yeah, I think that you can make that charge yeah. to Kissinger. I don't think that spreads to Laird. I don't think that spreads to Rogers, and I certainly don't think that spreads to the military, military no, in no, Vietnam. No, no, I think they're no. very. I think they understand the sacrifices that are being made by the South Vietnamese. That doesn't mean that all of these participants aren't absolutely sickened by the corruption yeah. and uh, all the nonsense in Saigon. Yeah, but, but of course what what people are just pouring money
0: in, in. And, and, yeah, and fantastic rates. I mean, the figures are unbelievable. They're they mind-boggling. So then, does this policy differ from that of the Johnson administration, especially? That of the Johnson administration. You mentioned that Kissinger was critical of the Johnson administration's policy. So is he really just continuing that in some ways
1: uh, no, I think no. he changed it quite a bit. I mean, I think what he was critical of Kennedy and Johnson about is reckless liberalism. Uh-huh. That this idea that governmental power is transformative, that uh-huh. you can nation build, yeah. that counterinsurgency will yeah. be effective. Yeah. I think as an academic, Kissinger took all of that with a grain of salt as a realist. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know. But then once in power, his responsibility was to extricate the United States from... From Vietnam without it suffering a loss to its prestige, global standing, and perceptions of power. And I think that was his ultimate end game in that South Vietnam just becomes a sideshow yeah. to reorienting American power away from Vietnam. And therefore theirs were the contempt. Yeah. Oh, They're okay. insignificant. They're not a big yeah. player. Their national aspirations really aren't concerned to me. What's concerned to me as a national security advisor of the United States is to extricate the United States from Vietnam yeah. with honor yeah, and yeah. with its prestige and tact.
0: So what about Kissinger's attitude toward the military sort of in general? I mean, his main card, negotiating card, is the escalation of mm-hmm. pain uh, in the North. But he's also keeping the military in the dark to some extent, isn't he? To he's some extent, Side stepping sidestepping yeah. them anyway. Yeah, you
1: know? to some extent yeah. he is. He had a much stronger role in the bombing of Cambodia than he probably should have had yeah. as national security advisor. Yeah. And very clearly, once the United States renews the bombing of North Vietnam above the 20th parallel, Kissinger's highly critical of the military. He had, There's a quote in the book, Our Air Force is great as long as they're fighting on a sunny day in the desert at noon. <laughs> they're constantly being grounded by weather, yeah, and he doesn't uh, yeah. think they're hitting targets hard enough, yeah. and it's taking too long. And I don't think that that's unusual, for a national security advisor to be critical but when you throw all the other things that he's been critical and duplicitous about then it yeah. It just fits a pattern. Yeah. It's not healthy.
0: So what role uh, does secrecy have in general in these events? You know, The actual talks, of course, are secret. Kissinger was actually distorting the outcome of his meeting in Paris you know, with Nixon. And so I suppose the question is, is this a need-to-know sort of secrecy, or is it just a matter of not being willing to see things the way they really are and call them the way they really are? Yeah, that's
1: a great question, because at the end of the day, you really have to say, do these negotiations matter at all? Ah, yeah. I mean, did they achieve peace with honor? Did they? And that's all a matter of perspective. Yeah, it could have been just people
0: having coffee in a working-class
1: suburb of Paris, you know, and, and, you and know the, the, talking about world affairs. Right. Like the the, the so problem yeah. for me always has been that he pursued policies to support these negotiations and then in the end signed an agreement that sealed South Vietnam's fate. Uh, yeah. Some would go farther than that and say, you know, and and made the sacrifices of Americans, Vietnamese, and Cambodians a footnote rather than, Uh, you know. uh, 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 So, again, it's a matter of perspective and where you fall on that spectrum of criticism. I was looking at it more narrowly than I think a lot of other historians would look at it and want to put it in its broader context, Uh but this was a trade press book written for a general audience just on the negotiations. There are some historians, you know, with academic presses working on this bigger picture and I think that they'll get at that question yeah that's interesting we're
0: talking about different genres almost of writing aren't absolutely right? so, the, so this yeah. is the kind of work you do when you're writing or an historical journal uh, right it's quite, quite the same summarizing uh so certainly and uh yeah, yeah mm-hmm. interesting so what about Congress? How does yeah. Kissinger stand with the Congress? Because as you say, Laird was really—he was one of them. So the question is, what's Congress's stance on the war, and how does it play into what's happened? I mean, uh, yeah, and the people behind Congress. So. It's
1: remarkable to me how little Kissinger thought of Congress uh-huh. in his own deliberations. Uh-huh. The Senate passed joint resolution after joint resolution to limit the United States' involvement in the war somehow, either to end it completely or to make sure the United States couldn't get in Cambodia or Laos. It uh, never passed the House. They uh-huh. came close. But even though they didn't pass the House, they certainly forced the United States out of Cambodia in June 1970, uh-huh. Congress.
0: Yeah.
1: It's all about Congress. Uh-huh. That's what it's about. And yet, I mean, if you did an exhaustive study, a uh, historical study... Um, You know, an 800-page printed book with Kissinger and Vietnam, you'd still be shocked how few index entries there were to Congress. He's really not participating in the way that a national security advisor would with Congress.
0: So the relationship then between negotiating the political and military situations on the ground in Vietnam... Congress does have some role in that or they should have I would guess completely, Uh, they they, they fund it they They, they, they can put parameters on it so how does that factor in here and is it just that Kissinger just ignores it all? That's what
1: Laird kept wanting to know I mean Laird, when he heard that Kissinger was proposing the secret bombing of Cambodia Laird said I understand your military objectives for Uh bombing Cambodia, I'm not sure I agree with them, he eventually would agree with them, sign off on them But for one thing, I know it must be public. You Uh cannot do this without Congress on board. You cannot do this without the American people knowing this. Or it will come back to haunt you. And it came back to haunt
0: you. did it ever, yeah, So as we remember. It was interesting for me to read through the book because memories of what was in the news in the day have long faded. However, the lights were going off again. And I was remembering how things looked anyway when you sat and watched Walter Cronkite tell you what was going on. Yeah. And there was a lot more happening behind the scenes, but we all knew that
1: also, you know, so. I think I was surprised at how little, I mean, this is a realist. Public opinion doesn't really play a role in this on one hand. But on the other hand, Kissinger really wanted to deliver this piece for Nixon for the election year. Even though Nixon was sometimes hot about that, sometimes cold about that. I mean, it's shocking how little that did Congress and public opinion yeah. play on, on his relationship yeah. with the negotiations. So, uh, Kissinger has claimed that he won concessions from Hanoi
0: throughout the whole negotiating process, and this is how he brought the mm-hmm. war to a close. So,
1: the question is is this true? Depends on what you call true. So, I'm, I'm, you know, the people who say, well, look, it's right here. There are some people who say that Kissinger did secure the best negotiation he could and that on paper it says that, you know, South Vietnam will take part in the political process yeah. and all this. That's fine on paper, but there was absolutely no enforcement mechanisms of that. And yeah. one of the first things you learn about negotiations is you have to link everything and you have to have enforcement yes. mechanisms. Yeah. You have to get buy-in by convincing the belligerents that they'll get more of what they want by being in the process and being out of it. Yeah. And then once you get buy-in, you have to link what they want with what you want. None of that linkage took place. None of it took place. There was
0: a threat of violence though. I mean, that's not the same thing as escalation. That's not the same same thing as negotiating negotiating a sustainable peace.
1: And there are, you know, there's camp that thinks that uh, Hanoi was on the verge of collapsing through this the bombardments of seventy two. That may be true. It may also be true that the Congress that got voted in in 1972 would have pulled the plug. As they eventually do on a lot of things. They repeal the Gulf of Tonkin. Yeah. Uh Yeah. They pass the War Powers Act. I mean, this is a Congress that's not in any mood for this to go on much longer. Which is why the peace happens before, you know, this Congress really gets, it's sworn in January 3rd. And the peace is signed January twenty third. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, for us, it, it was the great tragedy of our time: yeah. Vietnam and uh, Kennedy's assassination. Mm-hmm. The, t- the two events that really kind of changed the end of the twentieth century for all Americans. I think, yeah. frankly. So. so um, was Kissinger trying to get the Russians and the Chinese to help with putting pressure on Hanoi and how did they regard his overtures? Um, yeah, th- he did.
1: Very yeah. much he thought that this was a classic, you know, 19th century European move that the powers will tell the lesser powers yeah. what to do uh, okay. and how to behave. I think it completely misreads there where Vietnam was on the Chinese yeah. and Soviet radar.
0: Yeah, also very realistic. Yeah,
1: totally. Um, Politically. uh... And it's true that the North Vietnamese would have withered on the vine without the sophisticated anti-aircraft weaponry that Soviets provided. And that the the Chinese sent 235,000 combat engineers. I mean, all that's true. The level of aid sustained the revolution in Vietnam. There's no doubt about that. But that they would turn on Vietnam because they too wanted bigger things, not so much. I think that Mao thought he could get the bigger things without giving up on Vietnam, and yeah. I think the Soviets did too. Uh-huh. Now, part of the Soviet Union, the foreign ministry, might have thought differently, and those are the people that Kissinger spent to Dabrinen, that's oh. who he spent most of his time with, and Dabrinen thought of Vietnam much like Kissinger did. Yeah. He's a thorn in our side, let's yeah. get this behind, yeah. let's get on to salt talks, yeah. let's get on to peace yeah. in the Middle East, let's secure our economies. So the Russians weren't necessarily all of one mind. They you? weren't or all of one we mind there? and the further up you went, the more Vietnam was important. They yeah, hadn't yeah. blocked the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, they yeah, hadn't, out, yeah. you know, they yeah. they were the prize in the Sino-Soviet yeah. dispute. Yeah. And so and there was very little like could do at that point in Hanoi to the decision making. It is the Vietnamese that are doing the fighting and dying and they're going to be making the decisions. The Vietnamese thought that they had been duped at Geneva in 1954 to dividing the country because China and the Soviet Union wanted a face-saving peace for the French. They wanted the United States out after Korea. The United States was leaving the hemisphere. Don't give them an excuse to come back. And so the leaders in Hanoi in 1973, 72, 71, the same people had gone through Geneva we're just not going to lose at the negotiating table by being pressured by our more powerful benefactors we're winning this on the ground they thought yeah. at an enormous cost yeah and there was a model in Korea
0: for a future of some kind yeah. you know, wasn't there? and that's what South
1: yeah. Vietnam kept thinking yeah that's South, that's Vietnam, I, that, yeah, South Vietnamese I mean. yeah, leaders so kept think thinking that we're going to get yeah. a Korea out of yeah, this yeah, we'll have yeah, some yeah. armistice that'll yeah. become a permanent boundary yeah, yeah. But, yeah. and even, even Korea is not Korea anymore you know yeah, it's, no, it's, not, <laughs> it's, no, it's all not so, yeah. it's all up for grabs yeah
0: so the peace process did at least get us to a position where we could make that phase withdrawal, which actually yeah. happened, didn't it? And also the return POWs. I mean, right. that was something positive that came out for the United States anyway. I mean, you could say we ended the war. And maybe not
1: uh, in the best terms, yeah. But, but... Yeah, I mean, I think the Nixon administration does deserve some yeah. credit Kissinger, for Kissinger, Kissinger, Kissinger too. For this, my question is, if you were going to leave 10 main force infantry divisions of the North Vietnamese Army in South Vietnam as a condition of the agreement, yeah. Yeah. why did you drag it out? Because I don't see yeah. any evidence Not. that dragging it out yes. got you any yeah. more yeah, no. yeah. than it would have. Maybe it bought South Vietnam time, yeah. but it wasn't enough. So just sort of stepping back, what do you think should be the historical assessment of Kissinger's role in the war? I mean, just in in broad terms. Uh, I don't think he negotiated a good peace. I don't think he was a good member of the administration Uh on Vietnam. Now, people who really study the Nixon administration... Mm-hmm. might have a different view of him when they think of him in the context of China, of the Soviet Union, uh, of the Middle East. Yeah,
0: the aftermath afterwards, yeah. The, the, you know, I mean perhaps the relationship with China. The, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Perhaps he was the key subordinate member of the Nixon administration. Yeah. But on the Vietnam negotiations, yeah. I think his ego and ambition and personality and emotion led to a flawed agreement.
0: I'm under the impression you were a soldier in this war yourself, is that the case?
1: Well, I wasn't a soldier in this war. Oh, I thought you were. Right? No, my father was. Oh, I now, my recently discovered biological father, uh-huh. who I never knew, it turned out that he was a Marine, uh-huh. a combat photographer, who uh-huh. was seriously wounded at way, uh-huh. and I've used his photos in my classes for 35 years wow. without knowing it.
0: Oh, oh, that is something. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I thought you were a vet no, yourself. Yeah. No, So uh, anyway, did you learn anything writing this book, I guess, that you didn't know yeah. at that time? Oh, I learned a lot I didn't know
1: yeah. beforehand. Yeah, I think that the, what I learned most was from the South Vietnamese perspective, because we have a lot more voices from Saigon now uh-huh. about what they were thinking from the Easter offensive through the summer of 72. That was really an, an eye-opener for me. And actually, I got to know Mel Laird a uh-huh. lot more, and I, my respect for him is really really peaked here because he did all the things that Kissinger didn't do. Yeah, so you interviewed him. I didn't interview oh, him, didn't but, I, know, but I got to got know, know him through, his, know, through yeah, the yeah, documents. Yeah, yeah, okay, and yeah. I think that he got it. Uh-huh. He totally got it. He uh-huh. understood it. He out-Kissingered Kissinger in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. In terms of research, did you do research in
0: Vietnam? Or yeah, did some research yeah. in Vietnam.
1: Again, it's a trade press book, so I wasn't doing the exhaustive yeah. research anyway. I did a lot of research in the Nixon Library and the Kissinger papers, and I spent a lot of time in these transcripts that are now available in Vietnam and in the United States.
0: I guess one last question, thinking back to your book is uh, Iraq and Other Vietnam. I remember in that interview you talking about the relationship between political solutions and military solutions to Mm -hmm. problems like this and how important it is to pick up the garbage. Mm -hmm. I remember that that line. And did that apply here in Vietnam in a way in that could there have been a political solution that didn't involve so much military, I suppose? Yeah, that's a
1: great question. I mean, I think that's one of the things I hint at here is that... Because Kissinger took the negotiations and made them his, uh it really shut down the administration's approach to any other possibilities for public life in South Vietnam. Uh And other people who are working on this uh, issue, this is the hot issue in Vietnam War Scholarship right now, is is looking at these people who are both anti-communist and anti-Saigon government. Uh Kind of a third force, but not in the same way that old timers think of the yeah, third force yeah. as the Buddhists. or yeah, you know, uh, yeah. But there was a lot of cultural production uh-huh. around what it meant to be South Vietnamese uh-huh. that was never tapped. Yeah. There was a whole civil society that because Kissinger was just about power, and just about forcing Saigon yeah, to right. bend the knee to American wishes that were being dictated somewhat by Hanoi's wishes, none of that gets explored. Mm-hmm. And really in a negotiation, that's what you do. Uh-huh. You use all of the weapons at your disposal to build an agreement that has enforcement mechanisms and will get buy-in. And that usually means broadening the tent. Uh-huh. And we narrowed the tent. Yeah.
0: yeah, it just became a matter of yeah. escalation. of. Yeah.
1: And ultimately, I think that Kissinger made Hanoi's job too easy uh-huh. because he didn't do this. He yeah. didn't reach out into South Vietnamese society and see if there was any support for a political solution that didn't involve more of the same. Yeah,
0: but you would have had to have talked to the Vietnamese. <laughs> you <laughs> would have had to, exactly. You yes, would have so. had to do that. Okay, so I'd like to thank you, Bob, for visiting with us today on the Library Cafe to talk about your book, Reckless, Henry Kissinger and the Tragedy of Vietnam, published in 2018 by Public Affairs Press. Great great book and great press, actually. Sure. They do good stuff, don't yeah, they? they so, do. uh, yeah. Thanks so much, Tom. Okay, thanks. Yeah.